Scientism is the view that science alone plausibly gives us objective knowledge, and that any philosophy or metaphysics worthy of consideration can only be that which is implicit in science. Scientism is a key ingredient of the work of the New Atheist writers. Yet the glib self-confidence of its advocates notwithstanding, there are in fact no good arguments whatsoever for scientism and decisive arguments against it. Okay, was that confident enough? That, that <laughs> I don't want to be meek in my... Okay, um, so there are four general problems with scientism, or so I would argue. Okay, that's my qualification. First, scientism is self-defeating and can avoid, avoid being self-defeating only at the cost of becoming trivial and uninteresting. Okay. Second, the scientific method cannot even in principle provide us with a complete description of reality. Third, the laws of nature in terms of which science explains phenomena cannot in principle provide us with a complete explanation of reality. And fourth, what is probably the main argument in favor of scientism, the argument from the predictive and technological success of modern physics and other sciences, has no force. So let's examine each of these points in order. That gives me the outline here, at least the first four points in the outline, which are essentially you know, sections of the talk here which are going to spell out each of these claims that I just made, each of these four problems I claim that scientism has. So starting with the first, the dilemma for scientism. So as I've said, scientism faces a dilemma. It is either self-refuting or it's trivial. Take the first horn of this dilemma. The claim that the methods of science are the only reliable ways to secure knowledge of anything and that's actually a quote from Alex Rosenberg in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, Rosenberg being another prominent uh, philosopher and new atheist writer. That claim is not itself a scientific claim. It's not something that can be established using scientific methods. Indeed, <clears throat> that science is even a rational form of inquiry, let alone the only rational form of inquiry, is not something that can be established scientifically. For scientific inquiry rests on a number of philosophical assumptions. For example, the assumption that there is an objective world external to the minds of scientists. The assumption that this world is governed by regularities of the sort that might be captured in scientific laws. The assumption that the human intellect and perceptual apparatus can uncover and accurately describe these regularities, and so forth. Since scientific method presupposes these things, it cannot attempt to justify them without arguing in a circle. To break out of this circle requires getting outside of science altogether and discovering from that extra scientific vantage point that science conveys an accurate picture of reality, and, if scientism is to be justified, that only science does so. But then the very existence of that extra scientific vantage point would falsify the claim that science alone gives us a rational means of investigating objective reality. Now, the rational investigation of the philosophical presuppositions of science has naturally traditionally been regarded as the province of philosophy. Nor is it these presuppositions alone that philosophy examines. There is also the question of how to interpret what science tells us about the world. For example, is the world fundamentally comprised of substances or events? What is it to be a cause? What is the nature of the universals referred to in scientific laws? Concepts like quark, electron, atom, and so on. Do they exist over and above the particular things that instantiate them? The problem of universals is alive now as it ever was. Do scientific theories really give us a description of objective reality in the first place, or are they just useful tools for predicting the course of experience? Scientific findings can shed light on such metaphysical questions, but can never fully answer them. Yet if science depends upon philosophy both to justify its presuppositions and to interpret its results, <clears throat> the falsity of scientism is doubly assured. As the philosopher John Keeks concludes, quote, hence philosophy and not science is a stronger candidate for being the very paradigm of rationality, unquote. Here we come to the second horn of the dilemma facing scientism. <clears throat> its advocate may now insist, if philosophy really has this status, then it must really be a part of science, since the defender of scientism continues to maintain, digging in his heels, all rational inquiry is scientific inquiry. The trouble now is that scientism becomes completely trivial, arbitrarily redefining science so that it includes anything that could be put forward as evidence against scientism. Worse, this move makes scientism consistent with views that are supposed to be incompatible with it. <clears throat> For example, Aristotle argued that the very possibility of a world of changing things requires the existence of a divine unmoved mover which co continuously keeps the world going. Aquinas argued that the very possibility of a world of causes and effects requires the existence of a divine uncaused cause. 
which continuously imparts to things their causal power. But then, if they are correct, the existence of God follows from the very assumptions that also underlie science. Indeed, Aristotle and Aquinas took the view that since we can know a fair amount about the existence and nature of God through reason alone, philosophical theology itself constitutes a kind of science. For they would not agree with the narrow conception of science, on which a discipline is only scientific to the extent that it approximates the mathematical modeling techniques and predictive methods of physics. For Aristotle and Aquinas, the truths of philosophical theology may not be expressible in mathematical language, and they're not based on specific predictions or experiments, but that does not make them less certain than the claims of physics. On the contrary, so they would argue, they're more certain because they rest on strict demonstrations which begin from premises that any possible physical science must take for granted. Now, obviously, all of that is highly controversial, but the point does not ride on the truth or falsity of Aristotle and Aquinas' natural theology. The point is rather that if the advocate of scientism defines science so broadly that anything for which we might give a rational philosophical argument now counts as scientific, then he has no non-arbitrary reason for denying that a philosophically grounded theology or indeed any other aspect of traditional metaphysics could in principle count as a science. And yet the whole point of scientism, or so it would seem, given the rhetoric of its adherents, certainly the new atheists, was supposed to be to provide a weapon, kind of magic bullet, as it were, by which the fields, what fields of inquiry like traditional metaphysics and natural theology might be dismissed as unscientific. Hence, if the advocate of scientism can avoid making his doctrine self-defeating only by defining science this broadly, then the view becomes completely vacuous. Certainly it is no longer available as this magic bullet by which to take down the rational credentials of traditional metaphysics. All right, so that's the first line of argument, that scientism faces its dilemma, it's either self-refuting or it's only trivially true. Now, on then to, to the second point, what I call the descriptive limits of science. And I guess it's this, this little part of the talk here where um, if you have no philosophical background, some of this might be slightly technical. I'm going to try to make it as accessible as possible. But, um, but if this is kind of a little bit of turbulence, we'll, we'll exit the turbulence by the time we get here. So, okay, so just a little warning in advance. So the second main problem facing scientism, I've said, is that science cannot, in principle, provide a complete description of reality. Indeed, it cannot even, in principle, provide a complete description of physical reality, reality in general, even, even physical reality. That might sound paradoxical. But the reason, though that the paradoxical as it, as it sounds, has to do precisely with the method that has made the predictive and technological achievements of modern physics possible. Physics insists upon a purely quantitative description of the world regarding mathematics as the language in which the book of nature is written, as Galileo famously put it. Hence, it's hardly surprising that physics, more than any other discipline, has discovered those aspects of reality susceptible of the prediction and control characteristic of quantifiable phenomena. Those are the only aspects to which the physicist will allow himself to pay any attention in the first place. Everything else necessarily falls through his methodological net. Now, our ordinary experience of nature is, of course, qualitative through and through, not merely quantitative. We perceive colors, sounds, flavors, odors, warmth and coolness, pains and itches, thoughts and choices, purposes and meanings. Physics abstracts from these rich concrete details, ignoring whatever cannot be expressed in terms of equations and the like, and thereby radically simplifying the natural order. There's nothing wrong with such an abstractive procedure, as long as we keep in mind what we are doing and why we are doing it. Indeed, what the physicist does is just an extension of the sort of thing we do every day when solving practical problems. For example, when figuring out how many people of average weight can be carried on an airplane, engineers deal with abstractions. For one thing, they ignore every aspect of actual concrete human beings except their weight. For another, they ignore even their actual weight, since it could in principle turn out that there's no specific human being who has exactly whatever the average weight turns out to be. This is extremely useful for the specific purposes at hand. But of course, it would be ludicrous for those responsible for planning the flight entertainment or meals to rely solely on the considerations that the engineers are concerned with. It would be even more ludicrous for them to insist that unless evidence of meal and movie preferences can be gleaned from the engineers' data, then there just is no fact of the matter about what meals and movies actual human beings would prefer. Such evidence is missing precisely because the engineers' abstractive method guarantees that it will be missing. The description of the world physics gives us is no less abstract 
than the one that engineers make use of. Physics simply does not give us material systems in all their concrete reality, any more than the aircraft engineer's description gives us human beings in all their concrete reality. It focuses, as, as I've said, only on those aspects of a system that are susceptible of prediction and control, and thus on those aspects which can be modeled mathematically. <clears throat> Hence, it would be no less ludicrous to suggest that if the description physics gives us of the world does not make reference to some feature familiar to us in ordinary experience, then it follows that the feature in question doesn't exist. The success of the aircraft engineer's methods doesn't for a moment show that human beings have no features other than weight, and the success of physics doesn't for a moment show that the natural world has no features other than those described in a physics textbook. The reason qualitative features don't show up is not that the method has allowed us to discover that they aren't there, but rather that the method has essentially stipulated that they be left out of the description whether they're there or not. Now, the standard story about how the qualitative features fit into the world uh, is some variation on the distinction between primary and secondary qualities, familiar to all students of early modern philosophy from Locke and Galileo and Descartes and company. Colors, sounds, odors, tastes, uh, and the like, as common sense understands them, exist, it is said, only in our perceptual awareness of matter rather than in matter itself as what contemporary philosophers call the qualia of conscious experience. What exists in the external material world is only color as redefined by physics in terms of surface reflectance properties, for example, or sound as redefined by physics in terms of compression waves and so forth. Okay, so the idea is that heat and cold, for example, as common sense understands them in terms of the feel of heat, which you feel when you put your hand on the stove or you grab an ice cube, that's not really there in the physical world. What's really there in the physical world is <clears throat> molecules in motion. So if you want to redefine heat as molecular motion, you can say the water is hot. But if you mean by heat what common sense means by it, the, the feel of heat that you get when you stick your hand in boiling water, that feel, there's nothing out there in the world that, that resembles that, as Locke would put it. It only exists in consciousness. Same thing for color. If you want to define red in terms of the surface reflectance properties of an object, you can say an object is red. But if by red you mean what common sense means by red, the way red looks, it looks this way, you know, as you call it to mind, rather than the way green looks, that is not out there in the world. That's only in the, you know, that exists only in consciousness. It's kind of like the lens through which we look at external reality. Okay. Now, this picture of things, this primary secondary quality distinction, Colors, odors, taste, heat, colder. They're only secondary qualities. They're not really out there like the, like the primary ones, the ones you could model mathematically. This distinction only makes the qualitative features more rather than less problematic. Fitting them back into the material world becomes a big problem. So as Thomas Nagel writes, this is from his most recent book, Mind and Cosmos. He says, quote, this modern, the modern mind-body problem, how do you fit consciousness, the domain of conscious experience and of secondary qualities and so forth, and of thought and sensation all the rest. How do you fit that into the world of matter, the human body, understood as describable entirely in quantitative terms, just colorless, odorless, tasteless, soundless particles in motion banging into one another and so forth. How do you relate these two? That's the mind-body problem. This modern mind-body problem, now, now I'm quoting Nagel, arose out of the scientific revolution of the 17th century as a direct result of the concept of objective physical reality that drove that revolution. Galileo and Descartes made the crucial conceptual division by proposing that physical science should provide a mathematically precise quantitative description of an external reality extended in space and time, a description limited to spatiotemporal primary qualities such as shape, size, and motion, and to laws governing the relations among them. Subjective appearances, on the other hand, how this physical world appears to human perception, were assigned to the mind, and the secondary qualities like color, sound, and smell were to be analyzed relationally in terms of the power of physical things acting on the senses to produce those appearances in the minds of observers. It was essential to leave out or subtract subjective appearances and the human mind, as well as human intentions and purposes, from the physical world in order to permit this powerful but austere spatiotemporal conception of objective physical reality to develop." Unquote. Okay. Now, the problem is that this method entails that the mind itself cannot be part of the material world, given how mind and matter are characterized by the method. If matter, including the matter of the brain, is essentially devoid of qualitative features, um, and mind is essentially defined by its possession of qualitative features, 
then the mind cannot be material. It's a pretty simple argument, actually, when you think about it. If you define matter in such a way that color, odor, sound, taste, smell, meaning, purpose, as common sense understands all this, they're, they're not there in matter. Matter is devoid of all that. Matter is pure quantity. There's no qualities in this common sense understanding the term in it. But these qualities do exist in the mind. Well, then by definition, you're making the mind not a material thing. Descartes saw this. Uh, Malebranche, his disciple, made a expli an explicit argument out of this. And other early modern philosophers uh, did uh, as well. Ralph Cudworth, Cambridge Platonist philosopher, for example, makes this a key argument for a dualist conception of the mind, which they take, therefore, to follow from uh, modern science rather than to be in somehow kind of just a rearguard action against modern science. It, it, it's a logical outcome of the, the conception of matter, the purely, purely quantitative conception of matter that modern science adopted. Dualism of a Cartesian sort, then, with all of its problems, the famous interaction problem, problem of other minds, zombies, epiphenomenalism, all this stuff that you philosophy majors know about, follows from this. You owe Descartes your jobs, but you wouldn't be doing all this stuff, all this stuff to talk about. Uh, all of that follows, not, as I say, as a kind of rearguard resistance to the new scientific conception of the world, but precisely as a direct consequence of it of what's really, though, not a scientific conception, but a philosophical conception that was kind of just um, smuggled in through the science or identified with the scientific conception or guided the scientific conception, to put it in maybe a more neutral way. Okay. Now, um, the, the 20th century physicist, Erwin Schrödinger, saw things far more clearly than his scientistic admirers. Not scientific admirers, scientistic admirers. Okay. Um, more, more clearly than they do, uh, when he wrote the following, quote, we are thus facing the following strange situation. While all the building stones for the modern scientific world picture are furnished by the senses, qua organs of the mind, and while the world picture itself is and remains for everyone a construct of his mind, and apart from it has no demonstrable existence, the mind itself remains a stranger in this picture. It has no place in it, can nowhere be found in it. Unquote. So Schrodinger recognized that there is this deep conceptual problem, that physics bases itself on the senses, and then it gives us a conception of matter on which the senses have no place in the physical world. And Schrodinger says, this is a paradox, and I don't know what the answer is. This is, by the way, in one of the little essays. It's either Mind and Matter or On the Nature of the Sensory Qualities. I think that's the title. It's in his little book, What is Life, and other essays. It's a great little book. Um, and it, there are actually two essays. One of them is in there, and then one of them is, is, is in another short work. But in any event, uh, he addressed this at least, at least a couple places. Um, now, also more perceptive than contemporary proponents of scientism was another of their heroes, the ancient atomist Democritus, who saw 2,400 years ago that excluding qualitative features from the world is fraught with paradox. The Schrodinger uh, cites Democritus in this connection. Um, an imagined dialogue between the atomist's intellect and his senses, written by Democritus and quoted by Schrodinger, goes as follows. So Democritus imagines, he sees that his own picture, Democritus, of course, is one of the ancient atomists who introduces this idea, which the modern philosophers revived, and it guided, it was you know, part of the package of philosophical ideas that guided modern science. The atomists, including Democritus, introduced this idea that the physical world is nothing more than colorless, odorless, tasteless, soundless particles in motion, banging into one another. Right? It's, what, it's all what um, Aristotle, Aristotelians would call efficient causation. Formal cause, final cause, get rid of all that. Right? Okay, so it's colorless, odorless, tasteless particles in motion. That's all that exists. And this is something that a, that a, a philosophical, or today we'd say scientific conception of the world, gives us. And, but it's also grounded in sensory experience. Okay. Well, the moderns revived this. But Democritus, way back in the day, realized himself there's a paradox here. And he, he frames this paradox in, in the form of a little dialogue he imagines between the intellect, which represents the, the, the atomist philosophers who come up with this model, on the one hand, and the senses on the other hand, right? So he imagines the intellect saying, color is by convention, sweet by convention, bitter by convention. In truth, there are but atoms in the void. Okay, so the intellect, the atomist intellect is saying, color, sweetness, heat, cold, none of these things are really out there. They're just a construct of the mind. What's really out there is just atoms in the void, particles in motion, colorless, tasteless, odorless, particles in motion. And then Democritus imagines the senses coming back and answering the intellect by saying, 
wretched mind, from us you are taking the evidence by which you would overthrow us, your victory is your own fault. Okay. So he says, you're basically taking from the senses this evidence for this scientific theory. And then the scientific theory tells you, don't trust the senses, right? Because the senses tell you that the world's made up of objects which have features like color, odor, sound, taste, smell, heat, cold, meaning, purpose. None of that's really out there. Well, if you can't trust the senses about that, how can you trust them at all? seems like you've undermined your evidential base. And Schrodinger makes the same point, and his point is that this is a 2,400-year-old problem which has still not been solved by physics. And it can't be, because it's not really a physics problem. It's a, it's a philosophical problem. Okay. So that's Democritus' little, uh, uh, little dialogue. If you're looking for, you know, I don't know, you've got a class project, you've got a school play you want to put on, you might consider staging that. Yeah. <laughs> the downside is it's really short, you know, so. How can you turn that into a Halloween costume? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Intellect and senses, right. Okay. So Democritus's point in Schrodinger's is that it will not do to take an eliminativist line. An eliminativist line is where you deal with a certain phenomenon that won't fit your materialist picture, and you just say, let's get rid of it. If you can't explain it materialistically, it's not real. Okay. So a hardcore materialist might say, okay, maybe we can't fit the senses into the physical world, the way we've defined the physical world. So much worse for the senses. Let's get rid of them. Dennett actually does essentially that. Sometimes he's more explicit about it, sometimes he's cagier about it. Right? But he essentially takes an eliminativist line about consciousness and qualia. They're not really there. And when, we, when I talk about Dennett's book, I'll say a little bit about how he does that in his latest book. Okay? The problem, though, is that's ultimately incoherent. You're throwing out the very evidential base uh, by reference to which you're justifying the picture. In, you know, uh, that's supposed to justify throwing out the evidential base. The whole picture is incoherent. It falls apart. Okay, so Democritus's point, Schrodinger's point, is that it will not do to take an eliminativist line and deny that the problematic qualitative features really exist at all. For it is only through observation and experiment, and thus through conscious experiences defined by these very qualitative features, that we have evidence for the truth of the scientific theories in the name of which we would be eliminating the qualitative features. Such eliminativism is, as I say, incoherent. Nor will it do to suggest that further application of the method in question is bound eventually to explain conscious experience in the way it is explained everything else. This is a common move. Oh, just give us time, right? Give those clever young uh, neuroscientists time, and they'll solve the problem, right? But just punt. Let, let the, 50, you know, the, the, the scientists of 50 years from now, or 100 years, however much time we take, they'll sort it out. That, that, uh, they'll sort it out later on for us. Okay. The problem with this is that this is like saying that since we've been able to get rid of the dirt everywhere else in the house by sweeping it under a certain rug, we can surely get rid of the dirt under the rug by applying the same method, right? Hey, it's worked everywhere else. It'll apply in getting rid of the dirt under the rug. That is, of course, the one method that cannot work in principle. And by the same token, stripping away the qualitative features of a phenomenon and redefining it in purely quantitative terms is the one method that cannot in principle work when seeking to explain conscious experience. For conscious experience, the method itself tells us, just is the rug under which all qualitative features have been swept. Applying the same method to the explanation of qualitative features of conscious experience is thus simply incoherent, and in practice either changes the subject or amounts to a disguised eliminativism. All right, this is a point Nagel famously hammered on in his book, What Is It Like to Be a Bat, back in 1974. And ever since, people have been going on about the bat example, which, okay, it's an interesting example, but that's not really the heart of Nagel's argument. The heart of Nagel's argument is this, that modern science has defined matter and defined what counts as objective reality in, um, in a way that excludes, explicitly excludes color, odor, sound, taste, smell, meaning, purpose, all of these features of consciousness from matter. Those things are defined as, they're not really out there in matter, matter's devoid of them, they exist only in consciousness. Okay. So if that's how you're going to define matter from the get-go, then it's a fool's errand to try to explain consciousness in terms of matter by reducing it to some kind of material feature of the brain. You've already defined matter in a way that rules it out. And if you say, well, but look how successful this method's been, right? This, uh, this, way, this way of defining matter has been tremendously successful in explaining you know, temperature and boiling and freezing and so on and so forth. Uh, in, in predicting, you know, color phenomena and so forth. All that's, all that's true. But the reason it's been successful is that whatever doesn't fit that method is just defined away. It's not really part of the physical world in the first place. It exists only in consciousness. Okay. 
So when you say, well, we could just use that same method to explain consciousness itself, just give us another 25, 50, 100 years, it totally misses the point. Again, it's like saying, well, we got rid of the dirt under all the other, uh, on the floors and all the other rooms of the house by sweeping under the rug in the hallway. And if you say, yeah, but how are you getting rid of the, the, the dirt in the hallway? We'll just use the same method. It's worked everywhere else, right? How could this be the last holdout? Well, the reason it could be the last holdout is because it's only by putting it there that you're able to get it out of every other place. So in the same way, the only way science has been able to explain everything else in the world is by taking what doesn't fit that model, what's qualitative and not quantitative, and sweeping it under the rug of the mind, as it were. So naturally, the mind is going to be the one thing that you can't explain using the same method. The, the idea that just give us time, science will do it, it completely misses the point. It's incoherent, just as much as in the rug example. All right. So the qualitative features of the world... Uh, cannot in principle be explained scientifically nor coherently eliminated, and a Cartesian account of their relation to matter is um, unacceptable, uh, as many contemporary materialist philosophers would hold, and we Thomas, by we I just mean me, I don't want to assume anybody, anybody else in the room, Dominicans better be Thomas, but, <laughs> but, but um, we Thomas and we agree with that, that there are serious problems with Descartes' conception of the mind-body relationship. Okay, so, um, so that's one problem with the idea that science can give us a complete description of reality. But there's another problem, and it's one that's identified by Bertrand Russell, who's yet another hero of contemporary proponents of uh, scientism, but who sees things more clearly than they do. Russell wrote, uh, and this, this is a theme he returned to many times during the latter part of his career, and this is a quote from his book, uh, My Philosophical Development, which I like this little passage. It's, it's a very uh, crisp way that he sums up the point. Russell says, it's not always realized how exceedingly abstract is the information that theoretical physics has to give. It lays down certain fundamental equations which enable it to deal with the logical structure of events while leaving it completely unknown what is the intrinsic character of the events that have that structure. All that physics gives us is certain equations giving abstract properties of their changes. But as to what it is that changes, and what it changes to and from, as to this, physics is silent, unquote. Okay, so physics, uh, sorry, Russell's view about physics is that the very nature of physics, the very you know, mathematical nature of the methodology of modern physics, entails all by itself, that physics is never going to capture all there is to material reality. It's, again, like a net that certain features are inevitably going to fall through. If there's some aspect of nature that is not quantitative, it's not reducible to the quantitative, then physics method is guaranteed not to find it. And that's just the nature of the method in Russell's own view. Uh, and this would be the case even apart from the question of the secondary qualities. So, for example, the early Russell... Uh, Russell later on changed his mind about this, but very early on in, his, in, in his, uh, his life, Russell thought that we had to get rid of the notion of cause and effect. He said that he's, he's got this great line. Russell was a great writer. He had, he had a lot of problems uh, as a philosopher, uh, but he was a great writer. And sometimes he really had deep insights as a philosopher. But he thought, you know, he has this line where he says that causation is something that physicists, you know, um, they, they sort of allow us to still talk about only because they think it's like the monarchy, it, it does no harm, right? So kind of it, let, just let it stick around, right? It's not a problem. But the problem, Russell thinks, is that causation can't really be a feature of the physical world because it's not captured by the equations of physics. Okay. Now, that's the early Russell's view. Now, the later Russell saw that there's a real problem with this. In fact, he makes causation a central feature of his philosophy because he thinks the only way we have knowledge of the outside world, the only way, therefore, we can justify the claims of physics is if we assume there's a causal relationship between the mind and external reality. So causation ends up being a very important concept for Russell. And yet, he realizes it's not captured. That's a very fundamental concept. It's one you might think science rests on, and yet it's not captured by physics. So it's another example of a feature of the world that physics ultimately presupposes, but it doesn't itself capture, just like the qualitative features that I just talked about earlier. Okay. So if, as Russell emphasized, physics gives us the abstract structure of the material world, but it doesn't tell us the intrinsic nature of that which has that structure, if you've got structure, there's got to be something that has the structure. Structure presupposes something that's structured, right? 
um, then not only does physics not tell us everything that there is about physical reality, but it implicitly tells us that there must be something more to physical reality than what it has to say. There's no such thing as a structure all by itself. There must be something that has the structure. By the very fact that physics tells us that an abstract structure of such and such a mathematically describable character exists, then physics implies that there's more to reality than that structure itself, and thus more to reality than what physics can reveal. Okay, so that's, that's point two. Okay. Third problem has to do with the explanatory limits of science. What's the difference? Well, there are two tasks that science performs. Philosophy does the same thing at a higher level of abstraction. It describes for us what there is, what the world is like, but then there's a separate question that you have to address once you've, which, once you've accomplished that first task, which is, okay, why is it that way? Why does this turn out to be the correct description rather than some alternative? So that's what I'm talking about here when I refer to the explanatory limits of science. If there are limits to what science can describe, then there are also limits, I, I claim, to what science can explain. Um, and so this brings us to this third uh, problem I claim faces scientism. The fact that the laws of nature, in terms of which science explains phenomena, cannot in principle uh, provide an ultimate explanation of reality. Now to see the problem, consider physicist Lawrence Krauss's recent book, A Universe from Nothing. Okay, Krauss initially gives his readers the impression that he's going to give a complete explanation in purely scientific terms, of why anything exists at all rather than nothing. The bulk of the book is devoted to exploring how the energy present in otherwise empty space, together with the laws of physics, might have given rise to the universe as it exists today. This is at first treated as if it were highly relevant to the question of how the universe might have come from nothing, until Krauss acknowledges toward the end of the book, and after you've already paid your 26 bucks, I might add, um, sorry, um, that energy, space, and the laws of physics don't really count as nothing after all. But most of what I've been talking about, Krauss admits, it's not actually nothing, so I haven't really showed what the title says I'm going to show. But then he says, but I can say a little more. So then it's proposed that the laws of physics alone might do the trick. So he says, okay, so by taking it all down to this quantum vacu vacuum, as he describes it, and the laws of physics that govern it, he admits, I haven't really explained how the universe comes from nothing. But maybe we can get rid of part of that and just appeal to the laws of physics alone. That's a little closer to nothing, because it's less. Okay. Um, but these two, as Krauss implicitly allows, don't really count as nothing either. Krauss's final proposal is that, quote, there may be no fundamental theory at all, unquote, but just layer upon layer of laws of physics, which we can probe until we get bored. That's on page 177, if you don't believe me. Right? I hope you kept your receipt. It's a, it's a bait and switch. Okay. Now, the problem here is not only that it's a bait and switch, though it is that, since an endless regress of laws is hardly nothing, and vaguely speculating on the basis of no ev evidence whatsoever that there may be such a regress hardly counts as a serious explanation. The deeper problem is that Krauss not only does not deliver on his promise, but that he could not have done so. For any appeal to laws of nature, or a series of layers of such laws, as, as Krauss appeals to, simply raises questions about what a law of nature is in the first place, how it has any efficacy, and where it, or the series of layers of laws, comes from in the first place. And these are questions which the scientific mode of explanation, which presupposes such laws, cannot in principle answer. The basic mode of scientific explanation is always to take things down to laws, maybe laws together with antecedent conditions together. This is the old, you know, sort of Hempel model of scientific explanation, and nobody quite accepts that model in, in his classical form, but something like it, and especially the idea that when you get to the fundamental laws of physics, that's sort of explanatory bedrock, okay? That's, that's still a very widely held view, but the problem is that the laws themselves, why these laws rather than some others, are no laws at all, and what, it, what is a law in the first place? Physics can't answer those questions because it presupposes laws as its basic, it's the only tool that's got its kit, as it were. Okay. And you need other tools to, to deal with those problems. What is a law and why does it operate? Now, there are various philosophical theories about the status of laws of nature on offer, but none of them gives any aid or comfort to scientism. So we might hold, for example, that to speak of the laws of nature that govern some material thing or system is simply a shorthand way of describing the manner in which that thing or system will operate given its nature or essence or given its substantial form, say. 
right? I just excited Thomas. Substantial form. Okay. You don't usually hear that in, a, in Berkeley, so you know. Now that's the Aristotelian approach to understanding physical laws. But on this view, the laws of nature presuppose the existence and operation of the physical things that follow the laws. And in that case, the laws cannot possibly explain the existence or operations of the material things themselves. In particular, in contrary to writers like Krauss, since the ultimate laws of nature presuppose the existence of the physical universe, they cannot intelligibly be appealed to as a way of explaining the existence of the universe. Okay, so that's one account you could give of laws, an Aristotelian account, where to describe something as a law of nature is to say, well, that's really a shorthand description of the way that a thing will act given its nature or its essence. Or if you want to say substantial form, you can do that. Or if you don't want to use that term, you don't have to. But the idea there would be that laws piggyback metaphysically on the essences or natures of things. But in that case, they're not the fundamental reality. They presuppose something else. Okay. And uh, you don't have to be a Thomist to think this. So Nancy Cartwright, for example, very prominent mainstream philosopher of science, takes something like this view, essentially an Aristotelian view of what laws are. She's not a Thomist, but she's kind of a neo-Aristotelian. And uh, her view is, is caught on, or you know, has a number of uh, adherents. I wouldn't say it's the dominant view, but it's a, you know, it's a view that you don't need to have some Thomist axe to grind to find attractive. Okay, but if you take that view of laws, well, that's not going to save scientism, which says that science is the only mode of explanation, and so when you've hit the, the bedrock of what science can reach, you've hit bedrock, period, right? No, you haven't, because... Uh, you've hit laws, but laws themselves presuppose substances which, by virtue of those essences, follow those laws. So they're less metaphysically fundamental than the substances themselves that follow the laws. So that view won't help. Okay. So suppose you say, okay, we won't go for the Aristotelian view of laws. That's not going to help scientism. Um, a second view of what laws of nature are, then, and how they operate, <clears throat> might be one, the one endorsed by early modern thinkers like Descartes and Newton, who sought to overthrow the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy that dominated the Middle Ages. On their view, the notion of a law of nature is irreducibly theological, a shorthand for the idea that God has set the world up so as to behave in the regular way described by the laws. On this view, it's really God's action that strictly does the explaining, and neither material things nor the laws that they follow really explain anything. But for obvious reasons, this too is not a view that gives any aid to scientism which is as hostile to theological explanation as it is to traditional metaphysics in general. Okay. And it's a problematic view for other reasons. I mean, it's ironic. People often think, well, if you're a theist, then you're basically on board with the Newtonian, Cartesian view of uh, laws of nature as essentially divine commands. Right? The problem with that view, I mean, there are a number of problems with that view, but one of them is that it has a tendency toward occasionalism. Right? So if a law of nature, the fact that you know, I, let, I let this thing go, I don't want to damage my phone, but I let something go and it falls and that's gravitational attraction and that's described by Newtonian laws and so forth. Um, if, that, if what that really means is that's the way God makes the world work, then it looks like it's really God causing the phone to fall toward the earth. And uh, when we describe it as a law, we're just describing what God's doing. Right? This is the way God interacts with the world. He makes things fall to earth, say. Right? Then, it, then it seems like it's not really the earth that's pulling the, the phone toward it. It's really God who's pulling the phone toward it, and the laws of physics simply describe the mode in which he does that, right? Okay, so the theological view of laws has a number of problems. One of them is that it, it, it seems to entail this occasionalist view of causation. That it's really God that causes everything, and physical things have no causal power at all. Okay, but that's a side note. What matters for our purposes is that whatever you ultimately think of the theological view of laws that, that Descartes and Newton and others were committed to, it's not something that a defender of scientism. I mean, Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins is going to say, yeah, we'll just go along with that to avoid all this Aristotelian stuff, right? They're not going to do that. Okay, so a third possibility is to hold that laws of nature are really nothing more than a description or summary of the regular patterns that we happen to find in the natural world. On this view, they don't tell us anything about the natures of material things, and they don't reflect the will of God either. To say that it's a law of nature, that A is followed by B, that you, know, you, you drop an object close to the surface of the earth, it will fall to the ground. Um, say it's a law of nature, that A is followed by B, is on this view simply to say that A's, things of type A, tend to be followed by things of type B in a regular way. And that's that. This is the sort of view defended famously by followers of David Hume. But on this view, laws tell us only that such and such a regularity exists, but not why it exists. 
That is to say, on this view, a law of nature, or at least the ultimate laws of nature, don't really explain a regularity at all, but merely redescribe it in a different jargon. Needless to say, this sort of view hardly supports the claim that science can provide an ultimate explanation of the world. Okay, so if a law of nature is really just a regularity, right? Um, then we were faced with the following problem, right? We say, I don't mind dropping this, okay. So we say, you know, when you let things go, they tend to fall toward the, the, you know, the most massive nearby body, in this case, the Earth, say, okay. Uh, we want to explain that. Why do events of type A always get followed by events of type B? And someone comes along and says, I can explain that. It's called the law of gravity, right? Wow, we've explained it, right? That's brilliant, right? Oh, what do you mean by saying it's a law, right? What do you mean by the law of gravity? Oh, what I mean is by the law of gravity. That means when you let things go, they tend to fall toward the nearest body. <laughs> you just go around in a circle. You just slapped a fancy label on it, law of nature. But you haven't really explained anything. You're just re-describing the phenomenon. The phenomenon instead of instead of really explaining it. Okay. A further possibility, a fourth possibility, would be to interpret laws of nature as abstract objects, something comparable to Plato's forms, existing in a realm beyond the material world, and where physical things somehow participate in the laws, in something like the way Plato thought that every tree participates in the form of tree, or every triangle participates in the form of triangle. So here the idea is that laws are not, they're not divine commands, they're not divine decrees, they're not just regularities of the, the type David Hume talks about, and they're not Aristotelian essences either, they're not sort of a shorthand for the way a thing will operate, given its Aristotelian essence or substantial form. They're none of those things. They're like platonic forms, and things in the world follow them in the sense that they participate in the law. Okay. Now here, too, an appeal to laws of nature doesn't really provide an ultimate explanation of anything. For given this view, we would still need to know how it comes to be that there is a physical world that participates in the laws in the first place, and also why it participates in these laws rather than others, and so on. And that requires an appeal to something other than the laws. So once again, we have questions which of their nature cannot be answered by science but only by philosophy because they deal precisely with what any possible scientific explanation must take for granted. In that last proposal, right, a platonic view of laws, um, it, the problem with it is, like the other approaches to laws, the other ways of trying to spell out philosophically the idea of a law of nature, you're not going to end up with a picture on which science is the ultimate source of explanation, because it's going to presuppose a notion, namely laws, which raises questions it can't answer. Okay, why does the world participate in these particular laws, in these forms, right, rather than some others? Can't answer that. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, insofar as it raises these questions about laws, uh, science raises questions it can't answer, and so it has these explanatory limits. And nor will it do to suggest that ultimate explanation is not to be had anyway, so that science cannot be faulted for failing to provide it. This is another dodge that you sometimes hear from advocates of scientists, and they say, well, maybe science can't explain these things, but then it's just not worth trying to explain them, right? It's not a serious question. We can just, uh, we can just brush it off, right? For one thing, this view is itself a philosophical claim rather than a scientific one. It's a claim that requires argumentation, evidence, rational support. And the person making it has already, in effect, conceded that science isn't going to give you that, that rational support. So he's really doing philosophy, and he's just doing it badly if he refuses to recognize that that's what he's doing, right? Okay, so that claim itself, that, well, if you can't answer it scientifically, then it's not really a question worth, worth asking. Well, that's itself a philosophical claim rather than a scientific one. And for another, the claim is false, since it violates the principle of sufficient reason, though that's a, that's a much you know, bolder claim that I defend elsewhere, um, whether the principle of sufficient reason which tells us that there must be an explanation for anything that exists and any event that occurs, there must be some reason to account for why it is the way it is and not some other way. If, if, that, if that principle is correct, and in a few places I've defended the correctness of the principle of sufficient reason, then you can't take this dodge by saying, well, maybe there just is no explanation. There's going to be an explanation. And if it's not to be had by science, you're going to have to find it in philosophy. Okay, that's a more controversial claim, because the principle of sufficient reason is controversial. But even if we put it aside, you've got this other basic problem that to take the view that, okay, maybe there are questions science can't explain, but in that case, they're just not worth investigating, that's itself, at the end of the day, a, a philosophical position rather than a scientific position. So you're, you are basically um, 
indulging in philosophy in the very act of denying that anybody should, anybody should indulge in philosophy. It's a good, it's, it's a good confirmation of Gilson, Etienne Gilson's famous remark that metaphysics always buries its undertakers, right? Um, to try to argue that metaphysics is pointless and that it shouldn't be regarded as intellectually respectable always, it always engages the person making that claim in a kind of surreptitious metaphysical argumentation. You can't avoid it. Okay. So all that is uh, by way of exposition of point three. All right. Now, finally, as far as scientism in, in, in general is concerned, uh, I want to say something about a, what I call a bad argument for scientism. So if scientism faces such grave difficulties, why are so many otherwise intelligent people drawn to it? The answer, to paraphrase a, paraphrase a remark made by Wittgenstein in another context, is that a picture holds them captive. Hypnotized by the unparalleled predictive and technological success of modern science, they infer that scientism must be true, and that anything that follows from scientism, however fantastic or even seemingly incoherent, must also be true. So consider the argument for scientism given by Alex Rosenberg, to whom I referred earlier in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality. He writes, quote, The technological success of physics is by itself enough to convince anyone with anxiety about scientism that if physics isn't finished, it certainly has the broad outlines of reality well understood. He means finished in the sense of complete, giving a complete account of reality. Continuing from Rosenberg, And it's not just the correctness of the predictions and the reliability of technology that requires us to place our confidence in physics' description of reality. Because physics' predictions are so accurate, the methods that produce the description must be equally reliable. Otherwise, our technological powers would be a miracle. We have the best of reasons to believe that the methods of physics, combining controlled experiment and careful observation with mainly mathematical requirements on the shape theories can take, are the right ones for acquiring all knowledge. Carving out some area of inquiry or belief as exempt from explanation by the methods of physics is special pleading or self-deception. The phenomenal accuracy of its prediction, the unimaginable power of its technological application, and the breathtaking extent and detail of its explanations are powerful reasons to believe that physics is the whole truth about reality. Thus spake Rosenberg. Okay. Of, of, course, of course, many proponents of scientism would regard Rosenberg's physics-only version as too restrictive. They would regard sciences like chemistry, biology, and the like as genuine sources of knowledge, even if it turned out that they are irreducible to physics. But they would agree with Rosenberg's main point, that the success of science, broadly construed, predictive and technological success, supports scientism, even if it's a more broadly understood scientism. Rosenberg's argument, suitably modified in a way that would make it acceptable to other defenders of scientism, is essentially this. Now, here's the argument as I reconstruct it. Step one, the predictive power and technological applications of science are unparalleled by those of any other purported source of knowledge. Therefore, step two, what science reveals to us is probably all that's real. Okay, that's the argument. Science's predictive success is unparalleled, so it follows that only what science tells us is real probably is real. Okay. Now, that, I maintain, is a bad argument. How bad is it? Back in the 70s, audiences were, how bad is it? Some of you remember. About as bad as this one. So here's a parallel argument that I say is just as bad. That, that, that is obviously bad, but it's no worse than, than Rosenberg's argument. Step one. Metal detectors have had far greater success in finding coins and other metallic objects in more places than any other method has. Therefore, too, what metal detectors reveal to us, coins and other metallic objects, is probably all that is real. Okay. Now, I hope you agree that's a bad argument. <laughs> that's, no, that's a pretty, pretty good argument. I got my dissertation topic. <laughs> now, metal detectors are key to those aspects of the natural world susceptible of detection via electromagnetic means or whatever. But however well they perform this task, and indeed, even if they succeeded on every single occasion that they were deployed it simply wouldn't make it even probable that there are no aspects of the natural world other than the ones that they are sensitive to. But by the same token, what physics does, and there's no doubt that it does it brilliantly, is to capture those aspects of the natural world susceptible of the mathematical modeling that makes precise prediction and technological application possible. But here, too, it simply doesn't follow that there are no other aspects of the natural world. 
Now, Rosenberg adds, adds to his argument the suggestion that those who reject scientism do not do so consistently. He writes, quote, Scientism is the pejorative label given to our positive view by those who really want to have their theistic cake and dine at the table of science's bounties, too. Opponents of scientism would never charge their cardiologists or auto mechanics or software engineers with scientism when their health, travel plans, or web surfing are in danger. But just try subjecting their non-scientific mores and norms, their music and metaphysics, their literary theories or politics to scientific scrutiny. The immediate response of outraged humane letters is, Scientism! Unquote. Okay. So according to Rosenberg, unless you agree that science is the only genuine source of knowledge, you cannot consistently believe that it gives us any genuine knowledge. But this is about as plausible as saying that unless you think metal detectors alone can detect physical objects, then you cannot consistently believe that they detect any physical objects at all. Those beholden to scientism are bound to protest that the analogy is no good on the grounds that metal detectors detect only part of reality while science detects the whole of it. But such a reply would simply beg the question, for whether science really does describe the whole of reality is precisely what's at issue. <clears throat> now, this non sequitur is very common, but it is a non sequitur all the same. It is implicit every time a defender of scientism demands to know the predictive successes and technological applications of metaphysics or theology and supposes he's won a great victory when his critic is unable to list any. Right? Just hang out at Jerry Coyne's Combox, right, or the Richard Dawkins Foundation website and read the comments and watch people raise these dumb objections. Well, when was the last time theologians gave us cell phones, right, and they high-five each other? <laughs> okay. But this is about as plausible as saying that unless you think... Um, oh, I, I went back to where I, where I was reading. Okay. This is about the same sentence. It starts the same way, and I'm reading the earlier sentence. Okay. This is like commenting on the text instead of just reading the text, which I really shouldn't do. So let me get back to the text. Okay. This is about as impressive as demanding a list of the metal-detecting successes of gardening, cooking, and painting, and then concluding from the fact that no such list is forthcoming, that spades, spatulas, and paintbrushes are all useless and ought to be discarded and replaced with metal detectors. The fallacy is the same in both cases. That a method is especially useful for certain purposes simply does not entail that there are no other purposes worth pursuing, nor other methods more suitable to those other purposes. In particular, if a certain method affords us a high degree of predictive and technological power, what that shows is that the method is useful for dealing with those aspects of the world that are predictable and controllable. But it simply does not show us that those aspects exhaust nature, that there's nothing more to the natural world than what the methods reveal. Those who suppose otherwise are like the proverbial drunk who assumes that because the area under the street lamp is the only place he'd be able to see the keys he has lost, there must be no other place worth searching for them and no other method by which they might be found. Now, at this point, some advocates of scientism might admit that there are questions science can't answer, and even that there are other methods for dealing with those questions, such as those provided by philosophy. But they might still insist that there's little point in pursuing these questions or methods on the grounds that the questions are not susceptible of the crisp and definitive answers that science affords, and that the methods do not generate the technologies that science provides us with. On this view, the superiority of science is evidenced by its practical value and by the fact that it achieves consensus, or at least something approaching consensus. Philosophy, by contrast, is notoriously controversial and impractical. So even if science can't tell us everything, it does tell us everything worth knowing about. That would be the reply. But a moment's reflection shows that this fallback position will not work. For one thing, to take this sort of position is like avoiding classes that you know you won't do well in, and then appealing to your high grade point average as evidence of your superior intelligence. <laughs> if you allow to count as scientific only what is predictable and controllable, and thus susceptible of consensus answers and technological application, then naturally, but also trivially, science is going to be one long success story. But this no more shows that the questions that fall through science's methodological net are not worthy of attention, then the fact that you've only taken courses you knew you would excel in shows that the other courses aren't worth taking. For another thing, the claim that only questions susceptible of scientific investigation, consensus answers, and technological application are worth investigating is itself not a scientific claim, uh, but a philosophical claim, and thus one that requires a philosophical defense. So once again, the very attempt to avoid going beyond science implicates one in doing so. Okay. So that's the bad argument for scientism that I wanted to reply to. Now, finally, let me say a little bit, having talked about scientism in general, about this particular recent 
manifestation of scientism, or, or uh, instance of the species, say, which is Daniel Dennett's recent book, From Bacteria to Bach and Back, uh, and the subtitle is On the Evolution of Minds, or something like that. Okay. Um, so what I'm reading, from you, uh, reading to you here is essentially from a review I've written uh, about Dennett, which will be out in a couple weeks, I think. Um, but it, I think it kind of ties into, as I was saying earlier in the evening, ties into the themes that I've addressed uh, when talking about scientism in general. So let me say a little bit about Dennett's book then and the, the case he tries to make there in applying scientism to the study of the human mind. And I'll begin by asking the following rhetorical question. How do you get blood from a stone? Easy. Start by redefining blood to mean a variety of stone. Next, maintaining as straight a face as possible, dramatically expound upon some trivial respect in which stone is similar to blood in the ordinary sense. For example, describe how when a red stone is pulverized and stirred into water, the resulting mixture looks sort of bloody. Condescendingly roll your eyes at your incredulous listener's insistence that there are other and more important respects in which stone and blood are dissimilar. Accuse him of obscurantism and bad faith. Finally, wax erudite about the latest research in mineralogy, insinuating that it somehow shows that to reject your thesis is to reject science itself, capital S, capital I. Okay. Of course, no one would be fooled by so farcical a procedure, but substitute mind for blood and matter for stone, and you have the recipe for Daniel Dennett's new book. The philosopher Peter Geech once wrote that we should treat materialist claims to have explained the mind the way we would treat a claim to have squared the circle. The only question worth asking, Geach said, is how well has the fallacy been concealed? In Dennett's case, not well. Indeed, what Dennett gives us is a whole battery of blatant fallacies. For example, throughout the book, Dennett makes assertions to the effect that evolution designed this or that. Of course, evolution, which is an entirely impersonal natural process, doesn't really design anything. The whole point of Darwinism, as Dennett well knows, is to get rid of notions like design, purpose, and the like. Rather, evolution merely simulates design. It is as if the products of natural selection were designed, though really they are not. Just as water flows downhill as if it wanted, quote-unquote, to get to the bottom, though, of course, it doesn't really want anything at all. Talk of evolution designing things, like talk of water, of what water wants, can only be metaphorical. The trouble is that Dennett's entire edifice makes sense only if it is not metaphorical. For example, like other materialists, Dennett models the mind on the idea of the computer. But computers are artifacts, the products of human designers. Hence, it makes no sense to try to explain the mind in terms of computers, since the existence of a computer itself presupposes the existence of a designing mind. Dennett's way of dealing with this problem is to say that the human minds, or computers, that design computers in the ordinary sense, are themselves designed in turn by evolution. But again, evolution doesn't literally design anything so that this is no answer to the problem at all. It only seems to be an answer if we fail to distinguish the literal and metaphorical senses of the word design. Dennett thrives on such ambiguity and imprecision. Consider the use he makes of Richard Dawkins' notion of a meme, which is a cultural artifact, such as an idea, a phrase, or a behavioral pattern, passed on from mind to mind the way a gene is passed down from generation to generation. Dennett argues that the origin of the human mind can be found in the evolutionary competition between memes, his favorite examples of which are words. Human thought is the end result of a long chain of events that began as words invaded brains, as Dennett puts it, and some of them ended up reproducing themselves more effectively than others. Dennett addresses various objections to this approach, but he ignores the most glaring and serious problem, problems. First, unlike genes and like computers, words and other memes are human artifacts, the products of human convention. Apart from our custom of using a set of ink marks or sound waves as a word, these physical entities would be as utterly devoid of meaning or symbolic function as a random splotch of oil or dirt. The existence of words thus presupposes the existence of human minds, so that it makes no sense to try to explain the existence of human minds in terms of the pre-existence of words. Dennett puts the cart before the horse so many times, he risks prosecution for animal abuse. <laughs> Furthermore, like that? <laughs> I enjoyed writing that one. Okay, anyway. I'm stepping on my own lines. I've got to stop it. Okay. Furthermore, natural selection, whether among organisms or among memes, is sensitive to survival value alone. It cares, quote-unquote, 
nothing about the truth or falsity of our thoughts or the logical rigor of our arguments. If comforting falsehoods and fallacious reasoning happen to be conducive to our survival, then they will be selected for. They will seem right to us, even if they are not. But then, if Dennett's account of the origin of human thought processes were correct, we could have no reason to suppose that those processes track truth or conform to canons of logical inference. Again, they will appear to do so even if they do not. This undermines any confidence we can have in any idea or arguments, including Dennett's. Dennett's position is self-defeating in another way. He maintains that what philosopher Wilfred Sellers called the manifest image, that is to say the world as it appears to us in everyday conscious experience, as opposed to what Sellers calls the scientific image, or the world as represented by physics, chemistry, biology, and the like, Dennett maintains that this is a user illusion, the manifest image, the world of common sense is what he calls a user illusion. That is to say our perceptual awareness of the external world is a set of convenient fictions that allows us to navigate a reality whose true nature is too complex for our brains to handle. Now, there are at least two fatal paradoxes here which Dennett does not even address, much less resolve. The first is that the human self, or user, is, in his view, itself part of the illusion. Hence, there is no, there's no one there for the illusion to be an illusion for. Dennett's account thus destroys the foundations of its own intelligibility. Second, natural science, in the name of which Dennett puts forward his various theories, ultimately rests on the empirical evidence provided by conscious experience. Hence, if conscious experience really were a user illusion, it would follow that the foundations of empirical science are illusory. This is the same problem that Democritus identified 2,400 years ago, we talked about that earlier, and that Schrodinger identified um, earlier in the 20th, early in the 20th century. Now, that would deprive Dennett of the rhetorical device which, next to shameless ambiguity, is his favorite. (laughs) Namely, the interminable rehearsal of what he's been reading in the latest science literature. (laughs) The the ideas Dennett reports are sometimes interesting enough in themselves, but ultimately do nothing to support his own main contentions or solve the grave problems facing them. Their real function is to foster the impression that the dubious philosophical assertions that he interposes between the pop science summaries are somehow themselves scientific. Dennett's third favorite rhetorical weapon, and the one he falls back on when the first two fail, is the vulgar abuse of those who disagree with him. Resistance to ideas like Dennett's, he assures us, is not really motivated by science or by sound philosophy. Rather, it has its true motivation in fear, cry, and what he calls the love of mystery, quote-unquote. It reflects, quote, emotional turmoil at the very thought that our inner lives might yield to scientific analysis. It has no arguments in its favor better than appeals to what he calls mere intuition, ignorant fantasies, ancient myths, or even magic. Dennett tells us that his critics simply find views like his unsettling, and he is correct to this extent. A steady barrage of begged questions, red herrings, non sequiturs, straw men, ad hominem attacks, and other transparent fallacies can indeed be unsettling, especially coming from a professional philosopher. Dennett bemoans the legacy of what he calls the Cartesian wound, uh, namely Descartes' famous bifurcation between mind and matter, without realizing how beholden to it he is himself. Descartes had, for purposes of physics, redefined matter in entirely quantitative or mathematical terms, I described earlier. That is why he had to characterize the mind, which is the seat of qualitative features, like the experience of color, sound, a pain, or a tickle, as immaterial. It's also why he drew a sharp distinction between the way nature appears to us in conscious experience and the way it really is. Dennett does not reject this set of basic assumptions. On the contrary, he insists that the the difference between appearance and reality is even greater than Descartes said it was. Dennett is, in fact, an extreme Cartesian rather than the anti-Cartesian he takes himself to be. Having pulled the qualitative features of conscious experience out of the material world, Descartes relocated them in a non-physical substance. Dennett chucks out the non-physical substance and the qualitative features of consciousness along with them. What would be truly revolutionary, and what Dennett never even considers, would be to reverse Descartes' fundamental move and put qualitative features back into the material world. This would in no way require us to abandon the findings of modern mathematical physics. What it would require is merely the recognition that, while what physics tells us about the natural world is true, it is not the whole truth but must be supplemented supplemented by philosophy. The master fallacy that underlies Dennett's entire book, however, capital M, capital (laughs) F, is enshrined in the conceit that, quote, 
Many of the puzzles of human consciousness evaporate once you ask how they could possibly have arisen and actually try to answer the question, unquote. For as the reader discovers, what this means is that whenever Dennett finds some aspect of the mind that materialism cannot account for, design or purpose in the literal sense, for example, or the self, free will, meaning, subjective conscious experience, he concludes not that materialism is false, but that the aspect in question must not be real after all. What is real for Dennett is only what materialism can explain. Materialism is true, Dennett reasons, because it can explain everything there is to explain about the mind. And what it cannot explain must not really be there, he concludes, because materialism is true. From bacteria to Bach and back is Dennett's demonstration that he could stay on this merry-go-round for 477 pages without getting dizzy. <laughs> Blood simply has to be somehow derivable from stone, you see. And if logic and evidence indicate otherwise, then logic and evidence must be wrong. Darwin famously described the origin of species as one long argument. Dennett's bloated tome is essentially one long circular argument. And I thank you for coming tonight.